Thanks, Pastor Mike. How y'all doing this morning? Y'all is kind of like Yun's. It's just a little deeper south. But I'm glad that you're here today. Thank you for coming out to worship with us this morning. For those of you who are joining us online, uh, my name is Chris Massey. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, we're just so grateful that you'd come to celebrate Resurrection Sunday with us. I have great news. Jesus isn't in the grave. You did not hear me when I said that. I have great news for you. Jesus is not in the grave. Absolutely. That's something we should be excited about. You know, Lord, forgive us if uh, our excitement over a risen Savior is reduced to a golf clap. That's great. That's great. But we're so honored that you'd be here today and just that you'd give us the opportunity to be able to speak into your life, uh, to share fellowship with one another. I hope you've had the chance to get to meet someone this morning. And uh, we've been so blessed uh, by the fellowship that God has given us, this family. And that's what we really are. We believe that God wants to give hope for every life, and that includes yours. And we're just so grateful for the chance to do that. But Jesus is the hope. He's the hope of every life, and we've been really focused on that over this last month leading up to Easter uh, with this reality that the King is coming, and He's coming for us, and he's, he's coming to save us. And so we, in this series that we started in, taking a look at the idea of uh, what kingship looked like in Israel throughout its history, how God wanted to be the King of Israel, but Israel said, no, we want an earthly king. Uh, leading up to Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a colt, uh, you know, celebrating this coming king. But now we, well, I want to talk about what Jesus has done for us. Because here's the reality. I think everybody in this room knows that Jesus died on the cross. Is that true? Yeah. I think everybody in this room knows that Jesus rose from the dead. Is that true? Yeah. Then here's the, my question. So what? What does that mean? What does it mean for our lives that Jesus rose from the grave? And that's what I want us to take a look at this morning because there is a very specific significance for what Jesus did to us that we need to look at. And we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning uh, to really take a look at what that all means. And the book of Hebrews was written for a specific purpose. It was written to the first century Jews who had been living in a, a very legalistic system, a religious system of the priests and the sacrifices and the temple. And, and Jesus comes along, he dies and raises from the dead. But still the first century Jews, they're just like, well, so what? What does that mean to me? And so the book of Hebrews is that so what? We want you to know what it means. And so in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says this. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never, say never. never. I'm just making sure you're awake. Which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. So the religious system of the old covenant is really what's on display here. This contrast of what was it like before Jesus and what is it like now after Jesus, okay? So we, we just really want to make sure that we're comprehending that idea. How many of you are grateful that when you sin and make a mistake, you don't have to go butcher an animal and offer it as a sacrifice. Where are all my animal lovers in here like, I could never, never do that. I have had a few pets in my lifetime that I would have gladly sacrificed for the Lord. Um, most cats, I feel like I would sacrifice just about any cat for the Lord. 
Um, I'm a dog person myself. I don't know. Anyway. So it's amazing to me to look at this idea that that's what the old covenant was. People would sin, they would mess up, and going all the way back to Adam and Eve, the very first time that sin enters into the world, it says that they felt naked and ashamed. The next thing it says that God tells us he had to make clothing for them. Well, where does clothing come from? It comes from an animal. Right then and there, because of sin, there had to be death. There had to be blood that was shed in order to cover the sin and shame that was on Adam and Eve. And it goes throughout all of history to this point. And for literally over a thousand years up until the point of Jesus, these priests, these pleading priests, had gone in day after day, year after year, to offer the same sacrifices over and over and over again. And just as we read a second ago, it never got rid of sin. It never did anything. They continue to just have to go and God, we're sorry. We make a mistake. God, we're sorry. Go and sin. God, we're sorry. And, and it never took care of the real issue here. And so we're really trying to get this idea of, well, okay, so that's before Jesus came. Now that Jesus has come, what's the difference? And so I want us to take a look at, he's saying the pleading priests could only do so much. They could just offer sacrifices, just keep doing the same thing. It didn't fix the real problem, but then comes the king. This coming king that we've been talking about for weeks and weeks now. Then comes the king. And this king has a specific mission in mind of what he wants to accomplish because his greatest desire, God's greatest desire in the world is relationship with you. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that before. The creator of heaven and earth who put the sun and the moon and the stars, who spoke everything into existence, who created every animal, to which my kids always ask, why did God make mosquitoes? I don't know, they're part of the fall, I think. God made all of it, and he looked at you and he said, I want you. I want relationship with you. And so Jesus puts this on full display for us because he's come to give us a new covenant. Maybe you've never heard the word covenant before. Covenant is just a biblical term for a relationship agreement. All right, we have a couple of covenants that we work within within our own world here. You have kind of a friendship covenant, if you will, right? So your friend has to act a certain way. Might not be a written list of rules, but there are certain things that you know are acceptable and unacceptable as a friend, all right? Uh, I, I don't know much about being a girl, but I know for guys, we have the unwritten rules that's called the bro code, Okay. There are certain things you do and that you don't do and that you do not violate the bro code, all right? This is covenant relationship. Same thing in marriage. When you got married, for those of you who are married, you once stood at an altar before a pastor, before friends, and you, you made vows to each other. That was a covenant that you made. I promise to love, honor, and protect, and serve. I promise to put you first. I promise to look to you and no one else. All of these things that are in that relationship but one thing that needs to be understood within covenantal relationship is this concept that it's always bookended by if you, then I. God always starts off with if you do this, 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 and this, then I will do this, 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 and this. Now, sometimes it's good things. God says, if you do all of these things that I say are righteous and, and necessary, then I will pour out my blessing on you. But then we see the flip side of that. God says, if you forget about me, if you begin to worship idols, if you turn your back on me, if you begin to act wickedly, then I have to pour out my wrath on you. 
And so there's always this concept of if you, then I. And in the new covenant, this is really put on display because Jesus is trying to give us the terms of this new relationship that he's about to pay for. At this point, obviously, Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. This is at the Last Supper with his disciples. Maybe you've seen the photo or the uh, painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, the, the Last Supper is they're all at the table together. Um, I don't know of any tables where everybody sits on one side and just looks one way, but that's, that's what he thought it looked like. But this new covenant that he gives to them, this is, the, this is the imagery of what takes place. We read it in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. It says that as they were eating and all facing in the same direction, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Now, let's get over the very easy, notable point here. Drinking blood, ew. That's gross. But he's not talking about physical blood. He's not saying, I want you to drink my blood. When we're going to take communion a little bit here, we did not put blood into these cups. Okay, you can rest assured we don't do that. All right, we don't have any flesh here, we just have bread. Okay, these are symbols of what Jesus has accomplished. And what he's talking about with his disciples has a very significant meaning. And I want us to look at where it comes from. Because if you go back into the Old Testament, you see in the book of Leviticus a statement regarding blood. That Jesus make or that God makes to the children of Israel in Leviticus 17, verse 14, this is what it says. The life of every creature is in its blood. That is why I, this is God speaking, that is why I said to the people of Israel, you must never eat or drink blood. For the life of any creature is in its blood. So whoever consumes blood will be cut off from the community. So we have Jesus, who is speaking to first century Jews, so for over a thousand years have been living under the Levitical law, the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, and that has always told them, you don't drink blood. How many of you like a medium rare steak? You're the only ones that are saved. Praise the Lord. No, you don't overcook your steak, right? Well, under the old covenant, you can't have a medium rare steak because there's blood in it. Okay, we can't, we can't have any blood. It, it has to be fully well done and, you know, chewy in order for it to be honoring to the Lord. God gave us, through Jesus, a covenant of life. Let me explain what this means. This, this covenant of life that has been given through Jesus. We look at the, the book of Leviticus and it tells us, don't drink the blood because the life force of everything is in his blood and life belongs to God. You can't have it. You sinned against God. You, you, you created this brokenness between us. And really, I want to talk you know, just for a second here what the concept of sin is. All right, Anybody in here uh, shoot archery? Bow and arrow? Do you hit the target every single time that you shoot? Bullseye every shot? No. And in fact, the word in Greek is hamartia for sin, and it means to miss the mark. It is literally an archery term. It means that you saw the target, you saw the bullseye, you drew your bow back, you breathed out like you're supposed to do, you waited, you held, and then you released, but you missed the mark. 
Now, under the old covenant, God says, these are the rules. This is what you have to hit. This is what you have to do. And if you don't hit it, you don't get it, then you're out. It all started where God gave one rule to Adam and Eve. He said, don't touch my tree. How many of you who are parents know that one rule is one too many? Don't. It's, it's almost like saying, touch my tree. Don't touch my tree. God literally he gives them everything. He, they don't have to work. They've got this beautiful, luscious garden. They get to just relax and enjoy. And he says, I just got one rule, guys. Just don't touch my tree. Spoiler alert, they touch his tree. He says, all right, one rule was too many for you. So let me give you the Levitical law, which at some point measures out to be over six hundred rules that have to be obeyed by the children of Israel and even then they still can't attain righteousness in fact throughout the rest of the New Testament they refer to it as the covenant of death they're like death came in through the law death came in through sin and the law couldn't fix it because all it did time and time again was prove to us we can't save ourselves just no hope then Jesus comes along and he says, I want to give you a covenant of life. Because you've lived for over a thousand years with a covenant of death. I want to give my people a covenant of life. And in the covenant of death, it says you can't drink the blood. You can't have life because you sinned against God. And when you sinned against God, the very cost was life. Then Jesus comes onto the scene. He says, I'm going to give my life so that you can have life. And then he says these very specific words, which would have been probably a little more startling to first century Jews than it is to us. He says, this cup represents my blood. And let's read between the lines here. For the entire existence of Israel, you've been told you don't drink the blood. You pour it out because it belongs to the Lord. But I'm making a new covenant with you. This cup that represents my blood, I want you to drink it. I want you to partake of it. I want the life that is in me to be poured out as life into you. That is the significance of what Jesus accomplished. He says, I came to give you a covenant of life because I desire relationship with you. I want you to not have to live under the burden of the law, but to live as a people who have the grace of God to make them righteous. Now, if we're looking at that archery term, that doesn't mean that you can just start flinging arrows anywhere that you want to. Grace does not mean that I can go into the woods as a deer hunter, see a deer and go, and it's just going to hit it. Right? Praise, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? In fact, the opposite is true. I mean, shooting at a target is one thing, but if you're in the woods, a leaf the size of your pinky finger can send that arrow 75 yards in another direction. But God says, when you miss the mark, because of the blood of Jesus, my grace is sufficient to take that area in your life where you missed and put it back to the bullseye and say, no, I count it as righteousness because of the blood of Jesus. I take 
when you're making mistakes. I know you're trying, and, and, and you know, life of righteousness is so important that we still have to try to live righteously in a way that honors God. But this is the covenant that he gave us. I realize you can't do it on your own. I'm going to have to give you a helper so that the grace of God can sufficiently take the areas where you're missing the mark and put you right on target with who God wants you to be. This is the so what. When Jesus came back from the grave, that was significant. Lots of people have died, right? There have even been martyrs throughout history, people who were willing to die for a cause. There was one who said, I'm going to take the sin of the world and place it upon me. I'm going to willingly allow people to beat me and abuse me and scorn me and rip out my beard and punch my face and put a crown of thorns on my head and pierce my hands and feet with nails and hang on a cross and agonize suffocating for hours on end and then when I'm when I'm done with that I'm going to defeat it and it'll be gone it'll be broken the power of sin will be undone that's what Jesus did that's the so what that's why it matters he paid the price. And now we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says that your life is no longer your own because you were bought with a price. It was the price of the blood of Jesus. Church, we're going to take communion together in just a moment here. But here's the significance of communion. It's not just a snack to tide you over until you get home. Some of you, your bellies are already rumbling. You're thinking about a delicious ham or something that you're going to eat this afternoon. It probably, your house smells amazing. That's, this isn't a snack. This is not just a symbol. Oh, well, you know, we get the bread and we get that cup and we do the little thing and the preacher prays. and then it's, No, it's not just a symbol. When we take communion, it's as though we're sitting on the other side of da Vinci's table where Jesus and all the disciples are lined up. We're sitting down on the other side and we're saying, Jesus, I want the bread. I want the cup. I want the covenant. I want the covenant with you. I want the relationship with you because here's the covenant that gets lined out for us. And we read it in Romans 10. It says that if you profess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that the Spirit of God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's what Jesus gave us. That's why it matters so much. That's why His victory over the grave means so much, because He gave us a new covenant that is no longer bound by law, but that is covered in grace in which he says, if you profess my name and if you believe in your heart, you will be saved. So I want to invite you this morning to sit down at the table across from Jesus and say, I want the bread. I want the cup. I want the covenant. I want relationship with Jesus. Will you bow your heads with me? I know many of you came this morning because it's Easter Sunday. It's what you do. Maybe a spouse, a parent begged you to come. Maybe your kids. But this is the moment that God has afforded to you to sit down at his table. And I want to give you that opportunity while every eye is closed and every head is bowed. To make a decision to sit down at that table and say, yes, 
I want the body and blood of Jesus. I want the covenant of grace that saves my soul. And if that's you, if that's what you desire this morning, can I just ask you to slip up a hand because I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. I want to lead you in a prayer this morning. Romans 10 makes it so clear to us that these are the terms of his covenant. Profess, meaning I speak it and I live it. And believe, meaning that it's not just something that I know to be true. It's something that I'm living out every day of my life. God says you do those two things, then you will be saved. So whether you raised your hand or not, I want to invite you to say this prayer with me. To invite Jesus into your heart, but to also take your place at the table. So we pray this with me. Father in heaven, thank you for loving me and for sending your son Jesus to die for me. I want to sit at your table and partake of your covenant. I want relationship with you. I profess you with my mouth and believe you are the Lord in my heart. Come and sit on your throne in Jesus' name. God, we invite you to come and take the seat that is truly yours in our hearts. We acknowledge you as the coming king who has overthrown sin and death, who has established a new covenant in the blood of Jesus. We're so grateful for the opportunity to be partakers in this covenant. And God, I pray that in these next moments as we celebrate communion together, that it would not just be ceremony, it wouldn't just be something we do because it's Easter, but that we truly would embody that idea of sitting down at the table across from you and saying, Jesus, I receive your body. I receive your blood. I receive the covenant. I pray, God, that it would be a life-giving, power-filled experience for each of us, Lord, in Jesus' name.